Hello, everyone, and welcome to Spoiler Alert, a weekly talk radio show for TV and movie lovers. I'm your lady host, Sonia Stanger, and I'm joined, as always, by bumbling doctor of photography, Sean Dunham. Hi, Sean. Mm. Hi. Hi. I'm also joined, of course, by our very special guest host for the next few weeks, filling in for Jer. It's Kung Fu Master slash Landlady, James Brotheridge. Hi, Jimmy. Thanks for being here. I'm the loudest one in the Zoom currently. It's uh, impressive how loud I can be. It's not not a uh, two talents that always go together, but... Impressive. (laughs) Impressive I make it as impressive. Yeah, definitely. So this year marks the triumphant return of Mosaic, Regina's annual Festival of Cultures, which will be happening next week. Uh, To join in on the fun, we decided to each pick a film from one of the countries with a pavilion at Mosaic for the three of us to watch. We're having our own little international film festival. So to kick us off, Jim, why don't you tell us about your pick? Yeah. So I chose a film that had been on my radar for a while and that I had meeting, been meeting to get to, and that's Stephen Chow's 2004-2005 film, Kung Fu Hustle. Uh, Stephen Chow is an actor, and he's also a notable director in China. And, and part of the reason he had been on my radar beyond Kung Fu Hustle kind of being a movie that's beloved by a lot of cinema fans, and especially Asian and Chinese cinema fans, is that Stephen Chow later went on to direct The Mermaid, which was just a record-breaking box office success in China. So he's, you know, he's a big deal there. And he's also just a, a star and a director who, um, you know, gets played in, in North America and is known by certain folks, but not to the same degree, obviously. Uh, mm-hmm. And Kung Fu Hustle was a, you know, a kind of North American breakout for him, from what I understand. Uh, and so I, I did appreciate Stephen Chow's roles as not only director and uh, starring, but also producer and uh, screenplay. <laughs> He's, he really said, this is for me. Yeah. Well, he did it all, you know. He, he had a specific vision and he, you know, went in to execute it. Good for him. And how. And what a vision it was. <laughs> What an execution. Yeah. Well, the film itself, um, you know, we get introduced to uh, the Axe Gang, which are a gang of criminals in China who, you know, are making, you know, ruling the streets and everything like that. Uh, And we also get introduced to a small neighborhood uh, run by a landlord and a landlady. Um that isn't yet controlled by the Axe Gang. And when a couple of kind of middling hoods come into that area and stir things up, it kind of brings out this conflict. Uh, And from there, it plays on, you know, some of these martial arts action tropes where, you know, there's a a reluctant master. And so there's a a coolie who, you know, is a, a master at kicking. There's the... Taylor, who is a master with the iron fist. There's the cook, who's a master with the bow staff. Um, And, you know, it kind of plays on both things of it being joking on that and kind of being a comedic take on that, while also providing a lot of the kind of thrills and the action of like an actual martial martial arts movie, too. 
Um, yeah. Was there a side of that that you two preferred? Did you prefer the martial arts action or did you like the, the very silly, silly jokes better? Okay, well, when it began, I didn't quite have a grasp on its tone yet. Mm-hmm. And so when uh, the main villain, who I was quite attracted to, uh, shot that woman with the shotgun and she like flew, I was like, whoa. I was like, I didn't quite know that we weren't playing this for serious, that it was actually a Looney Tunes, yeah. Quentin Tarantino fusion vibe. And so then... Uh, and then I quickly got on board and was really into it. But I was surprised at the beginning. <laughs> yeah. I think it was like, the combo for me. Like, I I kind of feel like they balance each other out in a weird way. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, I was into, I would say I was into both. Not to be the classic bisexual on the show. <laughs> <laughs> I think, yeah, like it definitely doesn't get into its full comedic tone until you kind of meet the neighborhood. And then, like, once you're in the yeah. neighborhood, you know, there's the the landlord and the landlady who are just immediately silly characters and have that classic kind of, like, honeymooners, um, abusive marital relationship yeah, between yeah. each other. <laughs> and then you also have, there's like, the character who's just walking around guy. with his butt hanging out the entire time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was sort of what clued me in. <laughs> yeah. I was like, wait, wait a minute. (laughs) Why would would we, we should have shot that again. But then I was like, oh, this is his, this is his life. Yeah. Yeah. He's just the bad guy. Carefree. Yeah. He's, you know, living his life. He doesn't seem to mind. And he seems very unselfconscious, even when the Axe Gang shows up to, to kind of face him off, face off with him. Yeah. Like that is a real power move to, to get into battle mode with your cheeks out. Yeah. I love the styling of the Axe Gang. Yeah. The like the top hats and just like the looks of the Axe Gang. I was very into. Yeah. And just the sheer amount of references that Stephen Chow crammed in this. Like, I feel like there was every line was like, oh, this is a line from The Godfather. Or like, this is a line from Gone with the Wind. And the, yeah, the, I have mentioned before the very Looney Tunes effect of the landlady. Just like, when you're running really fast and your legs are just a spinning circle <laughs> below you and dirt yeah. is flying up. Yeah. Like it might that as well was, be that, the roadrunner at that point. Like it's literally. Yeah. Yeah. And that's like, what's kind of interesting. Like I think these days, you know, um, if you're talking about Marvel movies a lot, they're talking about, there's a whole kind of quadrant of film uh, people who will look at that and say like the digital effects are so artlessly done and so kind of carelessly done that it doesn't feel like there's anything real happening on screen. And in Kung Fu Hustle, Stephen Chow and his team, uh, whenever they go to digital, and it's always very clear when they are going, <laughs> yeah. like they are going mm-hmm. for a level of mm-hmm. realism, but that's part of it where um, they are going for such a cartoonish extreme where, you know, a lady in her like sleeping gown is running faster than a car (laughs) and you know it is just a a human cartoon at a certain point yeah like there was this really great moment during one of the kind of like final battles where the landlady and the landlord are kind of being bested by the axe gang because they recruit this extremely powerful other man um and he does this thing where he like he like twists their arms and then, the, mm. then their shirts like shred, like puff up from like the arm being twisted, out. like they've been exploded out. Like it was just so Popeye. 
and so hilarious. I really loved it. Yeah. One more reference point would be The Mask. If The Mask was also oh, yeah. just a movie that was yeah. kind of complete and knew what it was for the entire time. But that same idea of kind of like, you know, Looney Tunes are like Tex Avery cartoons where, you know, every body part can kind of like fall out of somebody's mouth or, you know, kind of get bent into or a certain shape. You can stomp your foot completely flat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, sorry. Uh, what was I going to say? I don't know. Continue, I guess. Oh, I did want to talk about the tailor. Well, also just like the masters in general, because they the Kung Fu masters all were middle-aged people, which yeah. I kind of appreciate. Loved it. Um, and also the, the tailor was a very effeminate man that got a lot of guff from the other masters, a lot of homophobic guff. Yeah. Um, and that was a fairly interesting character to have. A very queenie, queenie kung fu master. I feel like I've not seen this trope before. Well, that's something that might kind of come up when we're going through another one of our movies too, but the a comedic approach to that character um, mm. for a movie from like the mid 2000s uh, probably like didn't feel that familiar to me or it's not how like I would imagine like a North American movie would approach that character at that particular time and so you know I do kind of wonder like is there like a cultural space that Chinese film was in at that particular time where you know a guy walking around in red uh, tight underwear was just funny um, or is is it just Stephen Chow's particular vision that, yeah, a red underwear on a guy that you can see through his pants is, is pretty hilarious. Yeah, and somehow queer-coded. Yeah. Yeah. But, you yeah, know, he's still... Yeah, in some ways, honestly, it didn't feel as, like, violent as some North American homophobia at the time in film. Like, I don't know, it was, like, yeah, kind of a different brand, interestingly. Different brand, yeah. Yeah. And the tailor still well, but, kicks butt, you know? He yeah. still has his moments. <laughs> like, that's the thing. It's kind of um, like, he gets called a fairy, but he kind of, like, he kind of wins? I don't know. Um, The scene where he does get bested, uh, was that was, like, my favorite sequence when they're up against these two assassins that have this instrument weapon. And they use the instrument and the notes to fling blades at our heroes. And those sequences were so cool. Yeah. Especially the one where you could see a character was walking away and you could see things in shadow behind him getting sliced in half by the blades. But they were like just silently missing him because he hadn't noticed yet. I, w- I was really into that scene. Yeah, it was really cool. Well, the cat. She's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just a thing where it's not only the imagination of the digital side of things where, you know, you're thinking of like the instruments conjuring blades or conjuring like ghouls at one point to attack yeah. these people. But it is like a, a full performance on the side of like our trio of masters where they are still kind of going through like choreography uh, and performing something. And the two are very well kind of matched here. And it's just like a really exciting sequence and uh, 
you know, you really feel, I don't know. I, I, I felt it was a good end for those three, three characters, at least Uh spoiler mm-hmm. for Kung Fu Hustle. Mm-hmm. If anyone is going out to watch it after this, which you should, I did. Yeah. I would recommend. Yeah. <laughs> that scene reminded me a lot of that. What is that? Michael Sarah Scott Pilgrim. Movie. It, me it too. Scott Pilgrim vibes. Well, and I assume Edgar Wright yeah. is out there watching Stephen Chow. Like the Absolutely. two of them, especially in you know Edgar Wright's first trio of movies, first four movies, I guess you know, have that same kind of uh, that same sense of humor and that same kind of cinematic sensibility where they can kind of pop in and out a little bit uh, and and play with things like that. Yeah, hundred percent. And even but even just like some of the movement, like this this movie reminded me how like beautiful kung fu is honestly like Mm -hmm. how kind of like dance like dancerly it is um and i was like oh yeah some of that like movement is for sure there in scott pilgrim as well well and it had um you know it comes from like a stephen chow was like a younger man at the time he had been working for a while but you know younger than others um i guess but it also had you know like a background of martial arts performers and choreographers like the main choreographer uh young woo ping like he had done choreography for like the original drunken master back in the 1970s and like going up to like iron monkey in the 1990s so you know there were these professionals (laughs) who did the serious version or in case of drunken master like the you know the the revered version at least (laughs) and had been doing this for so long and then still came in to kind of execute like a really specific vision with Stephen Chow. Mm. Yeah. It worked. It really worked. It works. It's a cool movie, <laughs> I think. Yeah, would definitely Very agree. Much. Any other thoughts before we move on to our second one? No, I, I, that's pretty much how I felt. I, I felt it was exciting. I felt it was cool. felt it was very silly. Uh, and I'm very glad that I got the opportunity to watch it. Yeah, me too. Yes, Thanks. I'm glad you crossed that across our desk as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I enjoyed it a lot. Great work, James. Um, okay, yeah. Sean, do you want to tell us about your pick? Sure. So mine is less, uh, I would say, enjoyable in some ways, but maybe not. It's called Jana B. Doyaro from 1983, um, it's an Indian film, um, and I chose it. I was on the blogs, and I had d- discovered it because it was um, very different from other sort of Hindi cinema at the time. It was absurdist and, like, slapstick, and just all, was ex- very different from everything else that had was around at that time. So I was like, I will watch this, like, um, very 80s comedy-style uh, Indian film and it is insane it's very ridiculous it's wild. Um, it's about two photographers yeah it's about two photographers that open a, a studio and they are not getting any business but then an editor at like a uh, a scoopy magazine hires them to get to take photos of like um w- illegal like expose unscrupulous things happening uh between a builder, a building builder, and uh, and a commissioner, um, and they eventually mistakenly take a photo of what of the builder murdering the commissioner, 
and then they're trying to prove it and they find the body and then there's a whole like um weekend at bernie's like second half with the body um and then at the end where it's very like we like there's a lot of madcap slapstick craziness and then with the bad guys chasing them them chasing the body blah 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 and then at the end when it all seems to have wrapped up in a great bow the bad guys actually uh are obviously unscrupulous and convince the police officer to arrest them instead and then our heroes go to prison yeah and it's actually kind of a bummer (laughs) (laughs) surprise it was but it is a very like death of death of justice um theme death of truth mm-hmm. but yeah it was wild what did you guys think of this it was a journey for sure um <laughs> i would say i began very confused and had many questions and then as it went on and i kind of allowed myself to just go on the journey with the film. I had moments where I really genuinely enjoyed it a lot. Like, I think there are a lot of things that we'll talk about, but Mm -hmm. I don't know. The wacky antics really did it for me. It was honestly giving me, like, Marx Brothers vibes a lot of the time. Yeah, totally. And I don't know if a lot of that just had to do with one of the lead actor's eyebrows and the fact that he reminded me of Groucho quite a bit. Um, (laughs) But, yeah, like... I guess, I, I yeah, I'm confused. I have a lot of questions. I suspect that there's some, like, context stuff that maybe I'm that maybe would make it a bit less confusing, but... Well, I did, I, when I, in research, I... So there's a part where this bridge that they build collapses mm-hmm. because he's mixing sand with cement to save on money, and that bridge actually did collapse, and they used the real footage of a real bridge collapse. Oh. So I think that there was this sort of vibe of um people not trusting their their higher-ups at that time and it was Mm -hmm. like a comment on what was actually happening around the time yeah Mm -hmm. i would suspect something that and this is like the saddest thing a white person can say in this conversation something i'm halfway familiar with because i watched slumdog millionaire (laughs) recently (laughs) um is that there is you know uh there have been times where there's been this conflict between people who want to modernize and, you know, build skyscrapers and high rises within India uh, and the people who are already occupying the the slums and the areas like that that are being displaced or, mm-hmm. you know, otherwise kind of uh, pushed around by those developers and stuff like that. And one of the things this movie does really well is kind of speak to that anxiety in some places Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's also some of the spots where like the movie probably has the most visual interest too because they actually get to go to some of these skyscrapers and high-rises that are being built and and shoot there Um, because for a lot of the movie it can be kind of uh, a little drab looking because it is just those pretty standard setups to kind of catch the actors but you know, there are some shots like this one where they are on a crane elevator getting brought up to the top yeah, of the that tower. Was, that was a wild scene. Yeah. It's kind of, like it kind of half reminds me of that scene from Jaws where they're on the um, the barge taking them across to the other part of the island there. It's mm-hmm. just like mm-hmm. something visually interesting happening during this conversation and it like really kind of spices it up. Uh, and there are some moments in, you know, this movie that do that really well uh, and 
you know, I think the, yeah, the, the setting of talking about, you know, the high rises like that kind of gives you, gives them the ammunition to do, you know, some of the commentary, but also some of the visual stuff as well. Mm-hmm. And there's also not to go on too long, but like the movie also kind of gives itself permission to be pretty slapstick and pretty absurdist at like different points just by kind of getting into situations where the characters aren't going to recognize how absurd it is and aren't going Mm -hmm. to see the thing directly in front of their face. Like a couple, there's the cake scene. The phone, the phone call or the cake scene. (laughs) Yeah. The phone call where two men are entirely wrapped up in each other's phone cords and like, they just aren't going to come to the point where they recognize what the situation is. That they're clearly Um, talking to each other. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or like the cake scene where there's a man dressed as a dog and no one's going to, you know, one key character in the scene isn't going to recognize that that's a man and not a dog, um, among other things. Despite being about four feet away from him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. There's an, there's also like some extended Weekend at Bernie's uh, style yes, moments. there's... A very when drunk they go man. in the whole the play, <laughs> yeah, a very but a very drunk man assumes that the commissioner in his coffin is also a drunk man who has like crashed his car on the side of the road and like wheels him <laughs> home to have a party with him. Um, so yeah, okay, his purple coffin with wheels on it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the coffin can handily roll away uh, when the characters aren't looking and can go on in its own adventures, and it does. But yeah, that it whole the, the whole climax of the the play, where the dead body accidentally ends up in costume on stage, and all of the various <laughs> players come in with stolen costumes and are like rewriting. Um, this apparently like very famous scene, um, and yeah, it just it really worked for me. I'm not gonna lie, like I it just. The chaos, the controlled chaos, um, was was effective for me. It yeah. was very fun I will to watch. say it moved a little slow for me, even though as we're just explaining all the crazy things that happened in it, it sounds jam-packed. But I was a little bit like, okay, let's move it to, like, you know, they, they brought up this, like, photography contest so that they could... <laughs> take photos so they could enter it and then catch the guy in the photo behind them and then have blow it up like four different times. I'm like, okay, I think we could have figured out an easier, quicker way to, to get you having this photo, but whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like the movie is over two hours long, which is kind of by North American standards, awfully long for a comedy. And I think, you know, if you were going to remake this as a North American movie, You'd probably have, like, act two, they discover the the murder in their pictures, and then, like, the action kind of unfolds from there. Whereas it really is the back half of the movie, so there's a whole chunk before we even get close to, you know, them discovering the murder and that kind of, like, the action unfolding after that point. And there are kind of comedic things happening before that, and there's kind of, like, action and everything like that, but in terms of, you know, your... Um, most boringly traditional plotted film. Like this isn't quite that, you know, and it kind of stretches on that way, um, you know, especially when you kind of think of it as a comedy. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, for sure. And even just some of the like 
shots and moments where you're like, I'm not exactly sure what this prolonged shot of like this woman walking down the street or like this guy setting up in the Photoshop is necessarily doing for the film. But like, you know, you got to appreciate <laughs> you got to appreciate the choices. Yeah, it because oh, like the film opens with them opening a Photoshop and nobody coming to their shop and then people wrecking all of the things that they set out to give to customers. And in retrospect, that didn't really need to happen at all. I'm not <laughs> yeah. sure why it did, but I guess it sort it, of it introduces like us to the trying main to find. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, it definitely went on longer than it maybe needed to. And and it's worth saying as well, all three of these films that we're talking about today did have some pretty complicated gender dynamics. Um, mm. And I mean, also just a lot of people slapping each other. Which is like related, but also separate. Like, it's... yeah, there was a high amount of slabs. Yeah, like there's some what two key female characters in this movie? I think, like one is the editor, and she's the big one. And I think yeah. at one point she and... even tells the male lead, "Like I'm the master, and you're the servant," or something like that. Well, like <laughs> he's yeah, like yeah. on the ground. Yeah. A pretty she's like, "You're scene. my slave." <laughs> Yeah, it's like... And the other woman is just one of the bad guys, but she doesn't really get an intro. Or, like, we don't know anything about her. She's just in the group. And she's sort of just used as, like, a tool of seduction. So neither of them... Like, at first you think the editor is kind of going to be, like, better representation, but then I would say she just, spoiler alert, kind of ends up being selfish and corrupt herself. And so you're like, oh, okay. (laughs) I I thought you were... But also, that is... That is kind of their commentary. Well, yeah. Were everyone everyone be corrupt? Yeah. Yeah, you're not wrong. No. But um, I I'm curious how you guys felt about the two leads, um, Vinod and Ravi. Like, did you? Because at first, I was like, these two are bumbling idiots. I can't stand them. There's a lot of objectifying women right off the bat, and I'm just like. I can't with you two. And then I won't lie, they really kind of won me over through the course of the film. <laughs> I don't know why. Yeah, they're great guys, you know. <laughs> <Just kidding. laughs> there was, yeah, the, Ravi does have an extended zooming in on women walking by <laughs> with his photography equipment. <laughs> yeah. But at the end, they sort of are the only ones who kind of have adhered to any kind of principles and end up taking the fall. So it's interesting. Well, and then at the end they do that thing where they both look at the camera and then slit their throat with their thumb and then just like fall to the ground, which was kind of intense. I find. Yeah. Was that like a symbol? No, sorry. Go Jim. The movie kind of ping pongs back and forth a little bit between some very silly comedy and some very broad comedy and, going back to social comment at some points. Mm-hmm. And, you know, after the whole spectacle of that big theatrical scene where they try to reveal the body of the commissioner and then they eventually uh, are thwarted by the developers having the money to, to pay off the police. Um, it's, it's a very kind of stark contrast when suddenly, you know, they want to circle back to, you know, money still rules us and... <laughs> Yeah. You know, there's no hope yeah. in like a, a capitalist system. You know, it's uh, 
it, it really kind of jerks you back and forth uh, at some points throughout the movie. <laughs> As a capitalist system will do. <laughs> and with that, it's time for us to take a break, check out the food stands, and hear a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back with more Spoiler Alert here on 91.3 FM CJTR Regina Community Radio. Tuned into the community. And we're back. We will get back to talking our Mosaic movies in just a minute. Uh, but first, do you guys, um, do you know what time it is? No, I don't know. No, I'm not really sure. It's so weird in our modern era that none of us can see a clock, but um, it's game time, people. Whoa. (laughs) Wow. Yes, Jimmy. Oh, my God. I love it. Wow. That was so organic and lovely. Um, We are the game keepers. Yeah, yeah, we are. We are the keepers of the game. Uh, In case you don't know, if you're just tuning in, the game is where I spend all week looking for a title that these two have hopefully not seen. I tell them the title. They tell me what they think it's about. I tell them what it's really about. And we all have a great time. Are you two ready to play the game? Yes. I think so. Woo! Okay, I I cannot (laughs) wait to tell you this title, honestly. Okay. Um, I purposely did not mention it before because I wanted to get your live reactions on air. Okay. Uh, The title of the game this week is... Sex mission. Sex mission. Oh. Again. Sex mission. It's one oh. word. Wait, one word? Oh. It's it's one word. That Sex changes mission. everything. <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> Sex mission. Sex mission. <laughs> so now the question is, have either of us seen Sex Mission? Yeah, uh, well, I I presume not, but tell me. Um it sounds like you thinking up a succession like uh storyline <laughs> and you're like but it's not called succession it's called um <laughs> it's this really dysfunctional rich family yeah. <laughs> yeah. all right boys tell me what do you think sex mission is about well coming out of our last movie i do imagine it as like a slapstick comedy mm-hmm. and i do picture it as two unlikely male heroes maybe a rick moranis type in there sorry for Rick moranis you know for calling him an unlikely hero getting sorry sent to, to like a re- yeah getting sent to like a resort and like being forced to seduce people for some kind of state secret maybe or you know some other espionage adjacent mm. goal Okay, interesting, interesting. So they're on a sex mission, let's say. They're on a sex mission. Yeah, there is a sex mission. You know, they have, the title does what it promises. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> okay, Sean. Okay, so I think that this is like I'm imagining a young man of the cloth, two two maybe people that are studying to be priests and they are not they're they're not very good at it and they don't know if they're doing it right, but they're going on this missionary trip that they're being forced to go on and while when they get there they realize that everyone in the town that they have been sent to is extremely beautiful and hot and they're like oh god but what about our what about our jesus our lord and savior we need to stick with the mission and then they eventually become unraveled and they they lose faith in their mission and they it turns into a sex mission (laughs) 
Thank you, Sean. You know, and thank you most, both. Yeah, most priests are only successful because they get posted up in places with uggos. It's only when they get around beautiful people. That <laughs> yeah. <they're> yeah. <laughs> yeah, my small town had a real well, revolving door of United Church ministers, so <laughs> that's kind of sad for us. Yeah, you guys were too hot. We're too. Um, oh, I, I was thinking we're too fugly, and they were like, "This is perfect. <laughs> Everyone will get. Everyone, they'll all get their good uh, time in there." Oh my God! Well, <laughs> unfortunately, you're both wrong in all ways, shapes, mm. and forms. Although you were both a tiny bit on the right track with the two unlikely heroes, but it's not enough to warrant a point. Um, so, Sex Mission is a 1984 Polish cult comedy. That's how it fits with our theme. It comes from Poland. Uh, science fiction action film. And the plot is thus. Two scientists are placed in hibernation and should be awoken after three years. But when they wake up, it turns out that it has been 50 years mm -hmm. and they are the only two males in a new underground society composed exclusively of women. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> according to Wikipedia, the film also contains a hidden political satire layer specific to the time and place of its production. The socialist feminist system as proposed by the Communist Party, <laughs> but with re relevance still today. I'm curious about the person who wrote that and <laughs> how accurate that is. Um, unfortunately, I don't know very much about the socialist feminist system as proposed by the Communist Party in Poland. Oh, the SFS in, the 80s, but... in, in Poland? <laughs> but uh, yeah, it honestly, it looks interesting. Uh, it may go on my on my watch for a list somewhere down the road. Um, you may go on a sex kind of mission. Wild. I may go on a sex mission. And a sex mission of your own. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you both for playing the game. Thank you. Well, thank you. I'm so happy to learn about sex mission. Polish cinema at its finest. <laughs> Absolutely. Sorry to the nation of Poland for that being my choice. But once I read that title, I could not not choose it. <laughs> um. Okay. Do we have any last thoughts on Johnny B. Doyaro before... We move on to my choice. Ooh. No. Bye. Bye, Jana. <laughs> Bye, oh, Jana. It, did, it does translate to just let it go, friends. So that's I yeah, heard the... that it No, you uh, go. The title that they like the English subtitles for the version we watched had it as Who Pays the Piper? Uh, yeah. But then, yeah, Wikipedia does have it down as just let it go, friends. So I don't know well, what the we, disagreement we have, there was. We have differing uh, differing information coming in um, at this time. So <laughs> maybe it's like an idiomatic expression. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Hindi, Hindi speaking listeners, let us know. Um, <laughs> all right. So now that takes us to our third and final film, my choice, um, which was. Uh, Kim Ki Young's *The Housemaid* from 1960, which is a Korean film, um, and so Kim Ki Young is a pretty well-recognized Korean director. Um, he kind of went through peaks and valleys of popularity in his own time making films in the post-war era in Korea, um, but he has been cited as an influence by lots of influential uh, Korean filmmakers, including Bong Joon Ho. Um, and so the film is sort of like a 
I don't know, psychological, erotic thriller, kind of, um, yeah. wherein a, you know, comfortable sort of middle-class uh, composer and piano teacher is seduced by the family's new, very devious uh, young housemaid, um, and sort of the the unraveling in the family that ensues as a result of her nefarious plot to try and, and seduce him away from the family. Yeah. That honestly does not capture a lot of the nuance of the movie. Devious but that is indeed. Plot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Seduced it, after like, after he's already been established as this very kind of powerful man, like powerful in presence and kind of resolute man. Because, you know, mm-hmm. as a piano teacher, uh, he's teaching at, like, a local factory for, like, a group of women. Hey, I was like, what is this have... place? <laughs> is it a school? Is it a factory? Where are you? It's a, it's a factory. So it's a factory um, where they have, like, a extracurricular, like, choir. So he's the piano teacher for the choir. Um, and the women so I think it kind factory? of is very much within this this post-war backdrop where you know the the economic and situation in Korea was really dire and you know it was kind of a similar story to here where women kind of entered the workforce on mass um right and so like a factory so that's why it's like a factory of all young women yeah and in that Um, setting he has no problem kind of turning somebody down or kind of commanding people around uh and it's only when this housemaid comes into his house that it kind of upsets the order and kind of overturns that like power dynamic that he has with everyone else in his life Mm -hmm. yeah it's it's very much an interesting exploration of power dynamics and uh bong joon ho has cited it as one of the inspirations for parasite which i think is pretty clear um because it is kind of this complex navigation of class and um privilege and uh, like gender dynamics to an extent, like in some really complicated ways, I think. Um, but it's also just a really beautifully made and compelling film with some really like interesting performances. I thought. What did you guys think? Yeah. I like. What did say- your the version you guys were watching? Like, what did that look like? I watched it on Criterion Channel, where they had the restoration that was done by Film Foundation. Uh, and it's beautiful. It's just so crisp. And like the black and white compositions are just incredible. Uh, how did your version look? Yeah, I think I think the one on YouTube that we watched was also the restored version. But there were some scenes that, some glitchy, that didn't look yeah. as crisp. So I don't know. I wasn't 100% sure. But like there was like a card at the end about the the film association and like the restoration. So yeah. But it looked just, it looked really good most of the time. It's like a incredibly visually compelling movie. Like there's so much movement and, and action going when on. She, when she moves from her room to the piano room, like those shots were I loved those. Of like mm-hmm. nobody being alone in this house ever. There's always someone on the other side creeping in. Um, I will say that I really enjoyed the, the build-up and the sort of build of this tension of this woman sort of terrorizing this family. But then 
I kind of got lost when I was like, God forbid we don't call the cops or keep rat poison in the spice cabinet. Like, it seems like things kept happening and they kept just going back, like starting from zero every time. And like, oh, she tries to yeah. kill the baby. We'll just close the door. And uh, and it'll change nothing else about our lives. It's like, she's still out there with your other kids, but you have no problem with that. I yeah, there I, were definitely some moments of, of choices where I was like, I don't understand this. I felt like the te- they like I felt like the film wanted me to be like this family is trapped they have no way out she really got them and to me I was like they could easily call the police they're not liable for anything I don't know why no one's you know like it seemed to them I I felt like they wanted me to be like she's got the trap and it did not feel like they were trapped at all Well I think I think it's like she has them trapped in a social sense because the the shame of him getting her pregnant and then the wife essentially forcing her to terminate the pregnancy or kind of like, I think it's kind of implied that she sort of like tricks her into or like talks her into terminating the pregnancy. Um, what I got from context is that both of those things would be deeply shameful, like societally. And so that's why they couldn't go to the police because then he would sort of be exposed and lose his job at the factory. And um, they would lose kind of all of this status that they had been working really hard to build. Cause that's the other kind of like um, theme of the film is that the, their family kind of degrades because they're working so hard to get to this kind of like fancy two story, more Western style home. Um, and so it's kind of, I think I think part of the message is this pursuit of capital and like higher status takes away from kind of like the integrity of the the like family structure. But it's not super straightforward, I think, in terms of like character rationalizations and motivations where you're like, oh, yeah, that decision makes sense <laughs> was kind of how I felt. I think in each scene you kind of have once the housemaids kind of revealed herself as uh, you know, the, the fly in the ointment or whatever, you have the push and pull between like a character's despair and they're wanting to get out of the situation in any way possible, but them also wanting to kind of uphold like their, their family and try to continue in some way that kind of like reflects normalcy. Um, and part of what maybe, got me to accept it and buy into kind of each of those turns that kind of got bigger and more outrageous and uh, more extreme in some cases was that the movie kind of told you uh, what was going to come and what was going to happen as you go yeah. along. Oh, like right at the top, it says, poison right at the beginning. It's like, oh, is that yeah, going to be used for something? Yeah. I literally said the phrase Chekhov's rat poison to myself while watching this. <laughs> so I love that show. Well, and I think like right around then too, when the housemaid arrives, she like says like, oh yeah, like the, you know, last homeowner I knew, he killed himself because, uh, you know, he got the the housemaid pregnant or something like that. And, you know, mm-hmm. they kind of go to that same extreme here, you know, so it's, it's kind of, it's all these characters thinking that they are above, you know, um, how these dynamics will play out. And that they are smarter than everyone who's come before them and tried to build themselves up or get out of these naughty situations in this way. Um, 
but then they're kind of brought down to the same level. Uh, and then at the end, mm-hmm. you know, you get the little capper scene where they're like, ha ha, <laughs> what a that, like, fun tale this was of our folly, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I meant to mention that and didn't. Was the whole thing just a story? Because it, okay, so that at the top, you have Mr. Kim, the husband, like reading the newspaper and telling his wife about the story of a man getting his housemaid pregnant. And then, like, his ruin, basically. I think he dies or kills himself. And then at the end, it, like, it it ends, it's sort of, there's a, a false ending where the husband and the housemaid, spoiler alert, uh, take their lives with, with rat poison. And he dies at his wife's feet and says, like, watch over the children. And then it cuts back to him with the newspaper and then he breaks the fourth wall and basically says, like, don't do what I did. Like, husbands husbands will be seduced by young women. So, like, be wary was kind of the, the morality message that I got from that. But so then I was like, so was the whole thing like a frame story? Or was that or just like a... Him reading the newspaper aloud? I don't know. Also, yeah, And then, the, like, imagining the story? The, his view of teenage girls is wild. Well, yeah, you're like, sir. Uh, He's like, you... you let one in, and they will. You let two of them in. What you... Like everyone is fighting tooth and nail for this man. It's like, what? Mm-hmm. Well, he's got an incredible that... voice. Like I could see <laughs> hearing that voice. I'd be telling friends, like, you got to hear this guy talk. Like, let's send him some love notes right now. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. Right at the beginning, we hear, "Well, the piano teacher is hot, so you should join piano class." Um. And also, like, what is up with the role of Miss Cho? Because she, well, yeah, like she she's is kind, kind of, of the a conductor, middle, middleman. Yeah, like she was kind of the catalyst because she's the one who brought the housemaid. Yeah, I also wasn't sure. I was like, I think there's some commentary here because, because she's she... sort of more like higher class. Yeah, and she's class sort of like respected there. by the family. Which but she the orchestrated is kind of immediately not. I don't know. She orchestrated her other friend doing her bidding and uh, and unaliving herself, and then literally she does the exact same thing with this friend, and then this that person also becomes obsessed, uh, goes wild, uh, takes the family hostage, and then Miss Cho is like, "Oopsie," and then like runs away. And I'm like, so. <laughs> What is your deal? Jim, do you have thoughts about Miss Miss Cho's deal? <laughs> well, you know, she just she wants to inject herself into the family in the same way, but she can't do it in the way that the housemaid can. The housemaid can, mm. you know, kind of bring our piano teacher male lead to his knees, like literally and figuratively. Miss <laughs> <laughs> Cho doesn't have the the power or the or the presence to do that. Uh, and that's what kind of like differentiates the housemaid, you know. But is it also that she's kind of limited by her class? Like, I don't like know. it's almost like she has more to lose, so she she can't like transgress in the same way. Maybe or she's not like like she's more familiar with like like I think she's more afraid of the fall, so to speak. Whereas the housemaid is like already to lose. Yeah. yeah, at the bottom of the, the hierarchy. 
And so she kind of is in that position to like subvert things. And you can tell she's I don't know. at the bottom of the hierarchy because she smokes cigarettes. Yeah. <laughs> the way that cigarettes are vilified, as they should be, but, you know. And they were like, oh my God, this woman is crazy. She smokes a cigarette. Yeah. But yeah, again, I feel like this is one where there's some, for sure, some cultural nuance that I'm missing in, in mm-hmm. like interpreting. And it makes me curious about like, yeah, some of the deeper stuff. But still, even without that, I felt I found it really compelling. Oh, it's it's incredible. Like it's a full piece of cinema and, you know, it's just visually exciting and like dramatically inter- interesting. It's yeah, it rocks. I don't know. Did, mm-hmm. One thing I was curious about um, in the scenes between the piano teacher and the housemaid, there are those kind of moments where they would kind of capture like a small gesture or a small piece of contact between the two of them. Uh, and I was wondering if you two had any favorites, like my definite favorite was a moment where the housemaid's, foot kind of curves around the piano teacher's ankle and for 1960 that's about like as hot as cinema could get i think uh, well, there was uh, also in some hot, cases there was a hot scene where she is also like like kissing and licking his like feet but i was like whoa <laughs> yeah that was spicy some foot play here? Some, like... yeah so what were you gonna say jim <laughs> oh it's just really well observed stuff just like yeah. the imagination and the performance in there of thinking about that kind of stuff and like how to how to convey it and like what that says on screen is incredible. Yeah, a hundred percent. Cause it, especially like that specific moment where she wraps her ankle like around his leg, it entirely evokes like sex. Like it just yeah. it's a bit of a it, sex. Yeah. Issue. A visual <laughs> metaphor for sure. Yeah. Well, there's um, even some like even Adam in there and like the serpent and stuff like that, you know, like that. Yeah. There's sure. just a, there's a lot that you can pull out of that. And it's all kind of buried subliminally in this, just like one shot of like a beautifully composed film. Yeah. Well, even just some of the moments of like brief contact with Miss Cho, like when he is teaching her piano and has his hand over hers and the housemaids like watching that through the window and this way that it's like, at first you you're kind of it's kind of ambiguous you're like ooh this touch is like kind of intimate but he is her piano teacher and then through her eyes you're like oh like now it it takes on this new interesting meaning yeah also the character of mrs kim i found so interesting and the way that she is kind of like trapped in her duty as a wife, right? As this like traditional wife. Yeah, she takes that info that he gives her and accepts it very quickly. And immediately it's like, well, no problem. I'll just I'll just figure this out myself. Well, just forced it's, to accept it, you know? Yeah. It's so tragic. And like and, and there's something so like I just found her so compelling and like the way that she expresses this like really genuine pity for the housemaid about her situation and like I don't know, just the interpersonal dynamics, man, are so complicated in this movie. I did find the scene where Mrs. Kim was like, I'm going to give birth any day now. She gets up, is very obviously not pregnant at all. But (laughs) no problem. But I thought that was great. (laughs) 
Yeah, it was interesting for sure. Any last thoughts on the handmaiden, housemaiden? I kept thinking it was the handmaiden, and the I was like, maiden. the handmaid's tale <laughs> has infected my brain. Um, the housemaiden, another, before you move on. Yeah, horny film, if you want to ever do that. There's like a tooth uh, grinding scene in the handmaiden that is just among one of the most erotic things ever committed to film. Tooth grinding? So two yeah. people grinding their teeth together, or is the tooth you, grinding no, no, no. It's like uh, somebody with like, I don't know what tool she's using, but she is grinding this other lady's like tooth because it is too sharp and cutting her cheek. And uh, I remember seeing that at the RPL cinema back when it uh, came out. And like, just drop Ooh. a pin in that room. That is just insane. <laughs> <laughs> how, well, how, how you feel that scene. Amateur dentistry. <laughs> For your nerves. I will be Googling <laughs> that later. Um, Okay, well, that wraps up our discussion of these three films. Uh, Jim, I believe you had some honorable mentions for us. Well, yeah, you know, there's different directions we could have taken for this. Not only because there's a whole suite of pavilions for Mosaic, uh, but just different themes we could have gone with. So, for example, uh, one of our favorite action stars, Steven Seagal, uh, is Mm -hmm. very committed to working internationally. Mm-hmm. Uh, looking at his filmography, it looks like he probably has a home in Romania because I think he's done more films there than in the States. Uh, but if we wanted to do General Commander, which he shot in the Philippines, Cartels, which he shot in Romania, and Clementine, which he shot in South Korea, that could have been our three right there. They should rename um, him Steven Seagal. <laughs> he should be an ambassador. We should fly him into the city for this, I think, personally. Yeah. Um, the other option. I came up with was if we wanted to just do all long movies, like if we really wanted to commit ourselves. Um, So uh, SS Rajamuli, the director of RRR, he has a pair of films called uh, Bahubali uh, that I'm really excited to see one day, but I haven't yet. And together that'd be 326 minutes. Uh, Satan Tango, the Belladar movie, uh, the uh, filmmaker from Hungary, uh, that movie is 432 minutes long. I think it might be on the sight and sound poll. So, you know, that's probably on your list. Uh, and then, of course, there is the uh, slow cinema master, Lav Diaz from the Philippines. Uh, his longest film, may, might not be his longest, but one of his longest, uh, Evolution of a Filipino Family is 647 minutes. Uh, so we could have filled a full roughly a full 24 hours with you know these three-ish movies here if we wanted to as a as a theme for our single episode of spoiler alert well we have if only we had more time (laughs) 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 well thank you jim uh for compiling those if only you know what could have been too bad too bad maybe next time uh but with that that is all the time we have for this week so all the thanks to saskatoon's the garys for the use of our theme song manatuna to my co-hosts sean and jim everyone at cjtr and to you our beloved listeners for lending us your ears the show is broadcast live wednesdays at 6 p.m rebroadcast fridays at 3 and we're available as a podcast on cjtr's website and anywhere else you get your podcasts my electric is coming up next have a great week Bye. bye Bye.